This may date me a little bit. Um, can we start the clock in the back? This may date me a little bit, but some of you may remember a radio announcer, radio show, um, that was on almost every day during the week. The title of the show was The Rest of the Story. Some of you may remember that. And there was a man by the name of Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey was this wonderful uh, radio announcer. He would sort of tell stories. And the way he would tell them, he would always kind of bait you in with the story of somebody. And then as you move towards the end, he would bring about a revelation that sort of changed your perspective on the story. Some of them were well-known. Some of the people that he spoke to, you would know, except that when he would begin the story, he would change it just a little bit to hide the identity. One of the stories that I was listening to was of a young man by the name of Al. Al had come to the conclusion that he was useless and worthless and that his life had absolutely no meaning. At age 22, he had been an utter failure. He had flunked out of high school because of his attitude and the ways that he would deal with the teachers. And so they finally just cast him out of high school and said, don't come back. He tried to get a job, but without a high school education, he couldn't get a job. And so he went to a technical school and he flunked out of the technical school. Failed his first exam. Finally, knowing that he really did need to get a high school diploma, he went to a different high school and begged them to allow him to come. And he came and was involved in the high school. And finally, even though he was cutting classes and, and all of that, he finally would make it through high school. Finally, there we go. Let's anoint it with oil and see if we can heal it. Finally, even though he had tech classes, he finally graduated from high school and was looking for a job. At 22, he had a friend whose father was involved in the government, and so he went to the father to try to see if he could get a job with the father. Well, the father knew Al. And knew some of his struggles and knew his history and knew that nobody else wanted to hire him. So he sat down and saw something. Okay, we've got problems. Saw something in Al that no one else had seen. That he had actually not so much. Oh, okay. Um, where was I in the story? Oh, okay. So the manager decided to go ahead and interview Al for quite some time. In fact, the interview took two hours. And at the end of the interview, he decided to go ahead and give to Al a very lowly job, hoping 
that just being involved in that job would encourage him and build the kind of confidence that he needed in order that he might learn that he really did have skills and abilities and that might build his confidence. So he made him technical advisor third class. Well, Al prospered in the job, found his confidence. Al, better known as Albert, would come to explain space and time in a way that no one had ever seen it before in all of history. And Al became known worldwide as Albert Einstein. And then what Paul Harvey would do is he would at the end of that go, and now you know the rest of the story. Well, this morning I want to do what Paul Harvey used to do. And I want to take something that we are very familiar with and pull it out of the normal context in which we consider it, place it into a new context, a legitimate context, an accurate context, and ask us to look at things in a slightly different way so that we can come to understand a fuller significance of what is involved. The events are found in Luke chapter 22. Just in case. The events are found in Luke chapter 22. And of course, if you're familiar with Luke, it is the story of the upper room discourse. And it is the story of the Last Supper. As we began looking at the weeks before Easter, last week we looked at what I call table talk and looked at the fact that all the way through the book of Luke, Luke takes the idea of a meal and the meals that Jesus would eat. And he takes those and uses those meal settings to proclaim certain things about the message of Jesus. Many of them had to deal with the kingdom and those that would fellowship in the kingdom, those that would not. And you remember, we looked at the fact that that he talked about the that entrance into the kingdom was not based on self-righteousness, but was based on faith. We looked at the fact that Jesus in those meals would often challenge those present to say, here's how you consider yourself in the kingdom, but here's the reality. But three of those meals, and you'll see them sort of marked off with asterisks there, if you can see them, if they're they're large enough on the screen. Three of them are unique because in Luke's writing, he uses a phrase that piques our ears, that, that causes us to sit up and say, wait a minute, those words sound very familiar. The words are this, when he had taken bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave. Do those words sound familiar? We speak them at least once a month. We'll talk about them on Friday. They are the words that we find in Luke chapter 22 when both Luke and Paul and Matthew and Mark talk, us, talk to us about the establishment of 
of the Lord's Supper. And in that context, some form of those words that and after supper he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, there's some way. And when you read that in these three contexts, it, it piques our attention. Something unique is going on. And Luke is focusing not on the fact that there's a meal taking place, but the content of the meal. In Luke chapter 9, you have the feeding of the 5,000. And you have where Jesus takes the loaves, the five loaves and two fish, and he, he, he breaks them and gives thanks. And he begins to distribute them. And over and over again, he's distributing them. And exactly how the miracle took place, we don't know. But the whole focus there is on the bounty of God and the fact that our Lord, this one who is breaking and giving and giving thanks, our Lord delights in using his resources to provide bountifully for us. He wants to pour his grace and his blessing into our lives. Now, In a fallen world, it doesn't mean everything goes perfect and well, but it means everything is a result of God's desire to do his greatness in our lives. And he delights in doing that. When I picture the feeding of the 5,000, I picture celebration and rejoicing and laughter and just this wonderful atmosphere as the food just kept going out and out. And when it was all done, they collected 12 big honking baskets is the best translation of that, I think. Full of pieces. But there's a second time Luke uses those words. It's the time that Paul speaks about, 1 Corinthians 11. It's the time that Matthew and Mark speaks about. And it's the time when, we, when Jesus established the Lord's Supper. But one of the things that we need to understand is that our Lord, through his sacrifice, provides a new relationship with God, but that declaration takes place within an Old Testament context. The rest of the story that's found in Luke chapter 22 is that when it begins, our thoughts are not focused on something new. Our thoughts are focused on something very, very old that had existed for a millennia and a half. As for as the nation of Israel, well over a thousand years, twelve hundred years, fourteen hundred years, had gathered together on that particular night to be involved in a ceremony that the nation of Israel had done over and over and over again with a theme that declared that God delivers his people. But what's happened is when we partake of the Lord's Supper, often it's a table in the front. Sometimes we don't do this, but it's kind of tacked on the end and sort of the last thing you do, and and it's a very quick. When you understand the context of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't something that was done quickly at the end of the meal. It was the whole meal itself. Jesus was proclaiming something new is going on. I will take the old. And I will proclaim the new. And the new is astounding. 
we are so familiar with the new that we become complacent. But hopefully when we put it in the context of 1,400 years of celebrating the Passover, we can comprehend a little bit more of its specialness of what Jesus was doing in the night in which he was betrayed and took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. What's that all about? We understand it's about Jesus's flesh that was broken for us, and we understand that it was his blood that was shed for us, but it's in an Old Testament context that some of the rest of the story is seen. The first thing we need to understand is this, that Jesus' death is explained in an Old Testament Passover setting. When you read Luke chapter 22, and you begin to read there in verse 1. You understand that it's the feast of the, of the unleavened bread. It's the time of the Passover. And Jesus is wanting to gather together his disciples for a Passover meal. The Passover was a meal that was celebrated. It's later in April, I think, this year. It's kind of a farther away from Easter. It's kind of strange this year, I believe. But anyway, the Passover is celebrated in order to commemorate, in order to remember what its name declares, the Passover, the time when the angel of death passed over the people of Israel because they had put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lentil. You remember the story. You've either read the story or seen the movie, right? You know, sometime this week, the Ten Commandments will be on. Of course, my favorite scene is when they're on the rock after the parting of the Dead Sea, and the women are like this. Wonderful Cecil B. DeMille's moment. But it remembered the Passover. It remembered the Exodus. The, the bread that they ate, the unleavened bread, spoke of the quickness which, which they were about to be delivered. The, the lamb reminded them of the sacrifice. The, the cup reminded them of the celebration that was yet to come. And all of the different elements, the, the sauces that were used and the, the relish that was used reminded them of the absence of straw when they made bricks. And all of them had this incredible meaning and it reminded them over and over, year after year, that God had delivered his people, that God had established the old covenant, the one given to Moses, the one that you couldn't eat shrimp. Man, I'd have died. At least when I lived in Louisiana. The one that you had to be involved with the Day of Atonement and only the high priest could go in behind the, 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 uh, the veil in the temple and if he didn't do it quite right, he would be dead. And so they put pomegranate bells on the bottom of his, uh, of his um, um, robe and they would tie a rope around him just in case he died in there so that there wouldn't be a body in there for another year. They could pull him out by the rope. All of those things in the Old Covenant that proclaim that God is holy and it takes so much to come into his presence for you to be able to come before God because God is holy. And you ain't. The Passover meal involved a number of things. And in Luke chapter 22, we see it's a Passover meal. First of all, it was eaten in the evening. 
most of the time, the, the, the people of this day would eat their last meal in the late afternoon before the sun would go down. But when you read Mark and you read Matthew, you find that this meal was in the evening. It was unique, like the Passover. You read that it was eaten within the city walls. The meal itself needed to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. That's why they had this special room that they were gathering in in order to have this meal. That's why Jesus sends them out and says, you need to prepare ahead of time. Why? Because it's a Passover meal. It was eaten reclining and not simply sitting. They would often sit around a little table, but they would kind of cross their legs and sit there and and eat the meal, and then they'd quickly be out. This meal took a long time. So so Luke 22, verse 14 says that they were reclining at the table. They were up on their elbows, and they were eating the meal as they kind of leisurely enjoyed the interaction with one another and the remembrance of what God had done. Will you please forget Da Vinci's The Last Supper? They were not sitting at a table with Jesus in the middle and, you know, all the disciples around. They were in, probably in a U. And they were sitting around in, in close proximity to each other, interacting. It involved multiple cups of wine. Luke talks about the fact that Jesus took the cup And then later he takes the bread and then he takes the cup again. And you say, what's the order? Why why, why does Luke put in this other cup? I thought the bread was first. Well, you understand it's a Passover meal. And the first cup was a cup of thanksgiving. Then the bread. Then the final cup at the end of that meal that, that celebrated something within the Passover. And then there may have been one more cup of wine before they, they left and went out to the Mount of Olives. Following the meal, the night was spent within the city limits. That was the rules. When you did the Passover, after the Passover was done, you had to, you had to stay within the city limits, not within the walls, but within the city limits. Remember, up until that night, up until Thursday night, every night they would leave Jerusalem and go back to Bethany. Why didn't they go back to Bethany? Because Bethany was outside the city limits. And so Thursday night, they were sleeping on the Mount of Olives. That's why Judas knew where they were. He knew the plan. It involved the eating of a Passover lamb, and there's this incredible verse where Luke talks us about what Jesus was longing to do. And as you read, it says that in uh, verse, I need to find the verse. Verse 13, as they left and found the things just as he had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come and Jesus' apostles reclined at the table, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat. Now notice the next two words, this Passover with you. Literally, the word is this Paschal. Sometimes it relates to the meal as a whole. But the construction here and the verb that is used, Jesus is saying this, I have longed to eat this, this lamb with you. 
Something different's about to take place. And Jesus says, you see that lamb on the table? I'm about to teach you something different about the lamb. And the one who is the lamb of God. The lamb of God. That John said, takes away the sins of the world. Long to eat with his disciples. The lamb of the Passover that reminded them of the goodness and grace and mercy of God. And it involved the singing of psalms, the Hallel psalms, the songs of celebration. And you find that in Mark chapter 14, 26. This is the Passover. This is Jesus taking that 1,400-year-old tradition or some say 1,200, I think the older dates, and saying, we've done this for 1,400 years. But I'm about to tell you why it's changed. There was a well-established order and significance to the parts of the meal. The meal began with a Thanksgiving prayer and a cup of wine accompanied by herbs and sauces. That was the first cup. That's probably the cup that you find in the beginning there of Luke chapter 22. Following that cup, there was a declaration of the meaning of the Passover, and that was recited. One of the children, usually the youngest who could speak, would stand up and say, why is this night different from all of the others? And it was the Fathers, the the patriarchs' responsibility to talk about the Passover and how God delivered them and led them through the desert and established his covenant. In our house at Christmas time, when we gather together on Christmas morning, it's the patriarchs' responsibility, mine, to read the Christmas story. If we ever go to Brennan's house for Christmas morning, He's now the patriarch of that house. He can read it. Maybe. But there's that sense of this is the significance. So interesting. Jesus takes the elements and answers the questions in a very different way. You see, in the Passover, you would say, The bread, the unleavened bread reminds us of the haste with which we left. The lamb reminds us of the sacrifice. The cup reminds us of the celebration. But remember what Jesus did? When he had taken bread, he broke it and said, not this is in haste. He changed the meaning. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. He took the cup and totally changed the significance. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Oh, and by the way, the lamb, 
the lamb was the one who was present in the midst of the meal. Totally new meaning. Totally new understanding. After that, the main course of lamb and bread was served, ending with another prayer and a cup of wine. One we read, and he took the cup. After supper, he took the cup and said, that's probably this third cup. And then finally, the meal ended with the singing of a final psalm. And possibly there's some debate historically whether or not there was a fourth cup. But what happens is that Jesus changes the whole significance of the meal. He's saying, yes, there is still a Passover. Yes, there is still a lamb that takes away the sins. Yes, there is still a time to celebrate. Yes, there is still a fellowship of God's people. But its significance is totally different because we are no longer under the old covenant. We are no longer under the laws. We are no longer under a covenant written on stone, but we are written on our hearts and the relationship is brand new when we partake of those elements it's taking the reality of 1400 years and saying at that moment Jesus changed it because of what would happen the very next day you see as the old lamb's blood led to the old covenant and God would take and sacrifice an animal and declare his, his covenant with the people. The new lamb's blood establishes a new covenant. God makes a promise to the people of Israel. He said, there's a day coming when I will establish a new covenant with you. Not like the old but a brand new one. When Jesus is in that upper room and he takes that cup, hear what he says. This cup is the, what's the next word? New covenant in my blood. Not the old, but the new. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34, declares that new covenant. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, not on stone, but within. Something changes within us if we enjoy the new covenant. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Personal interaction, one-on-one with God. So much of the Old Testament focuses on the nation and the corporate identity. That's why they prayed, our Father. Jesus reminds them, that it's my father. I call God Abba, Dad. I have that privilege. And then, listen to this. They will all know me, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
we tell the story in our family where we were out shopping and Nicole went into this one particular store and it was a southern setting and asked the clerk, do you have this? And the clerk said, we ain't got that no more. Oh, we ain't got none no more. Figure that out with the negatives. And of course, it just upsets. And of course, she said, you ain't got none no more? And the girl said, yeah, we ain't got none no more. Beloved, you know the message of the new covenant? We ain't got none no more sins. Because before God, we stand in a right relationship. All things are right. All hindrances of him pouring out his love towards us are removed. In Ezekiel, that same idea, the word new covenant isn't used, but it's obviously talking about the same thing. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I give your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Something changes in this new covenant. Now, my belief, and some may di- are going to disagree with me, I believe the complete fulfillment of that covenant is promised to Israel. Israel will get a land again, not in 1947, but one that will be established by God with a new David on the throne. And, you know, I believe in a literal millennial time. I believe that's the ultimate fulfillment. But we are invited to participate, to participate in this new covenant, to enjoy some of its aspects, its major aspects as God's people and enjoy its relational blessings. Paul said it this way. He has made us competent. That's Paul and his followers, his, his, those that traveled with him. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. That was Paul's job. Now, Israel will get the land. That's something special to them, and I believe that fulfillment is yet to come. But... As God's people in Christ, we enjoy the relational aspects of that covenant. Think about it. We enjoy the complete forgiveness of our sins. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Read Hebrews. Hebrews is all about the enjoyment of the new covenant, the enjoyment of what God has established. And he talks about there how the old, under the old covenant, the priests would have to come day after day, continually having to do another sacrifice to cover the sins so that they could enjoy the land and they could enjoy this relationship. And finally, 
The writer of Hebrews cries out, but Jesus with one sacrifice for all time pays for the sin of those who partake of that covenant. Imagine being a priest. Oh no, here he comes again. I wonder what he did this week. Do you know the one piece of furniture that was not in the temple? There was no chair. Why? The work was never done. But the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus gives one sacrifice for all time. And then in the heavenly temple, it says he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Why? To tell us die. It's finished. All the enmity that existed between God and people are removed in Christ if we accept his sacrifice. The curtain that separated God from man is rent, is torn. We have complete ability to fellowship with the God that created the universe because of the new covenant in the blood of Christ that we receive through faith. So many believers struggle with the sins and the failures of their lives. And yes, they have their physical and temporal consequences. But nothing eternally. Our relationship with God is established. Our relationship with God is right. Our sins are forgiven. And no matter what the struggle you may have in your life, God says, because of the new covenant, the sacrifice made by Christ, the new Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, we call God Abba, Dad, Father. Through faith in Christ, that does not change forever. We enjoy a personal relationship with God. Remember what it said in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Each one will know me. Now, there's a reason to gather together. We're to be corporate. And there's a lot spoken of in the New Covenant, the New Testament, about corporate involvement with one another. But our relationship with God is not only corporate. It's individual. God loves each of his children. We had a discussion with some people the other day about which kid did your parents love the most? You know, there's always, he, she loved, they loved you better than they loved me. With God, never a problem. His love is as infinite in your life as in anyone else's. And in Christ, that cannot change. There is nothing that can separate or diminish that love in our lives. We enjoy the indwelling of the very Spirit of God. He lives connected to our lives. I'm not sure what the ontological, the the physical aspect of that is, but I know what the promise is. God's Spirit, if you are God's child, is ever-present in your life to lead and to guide and to direct and to 
comfort and to encourage and to reveal God's word and to reveal your struggles so that you can deal with them and all the things that the Spirit does within our lives. And we enjoy a change that begins from the inside out. Beloved, what are the areas you struggle with in your life? What are the things that defeat you in your life? God says, yes, make the changes that bring about change. But understand that God is already at work in your life to bring victory over those things. So much of what we do in our lives, so many of the sinful things and the wrong patterns come out of the struggles from within our loneliness, our sense of inadequacy, our sense of insufficiency, our lack of of, of, of believing that we belong, all of those things. And God says, it is my spirit within you that continually declares that you are my child. That continually declares that the spirit is there to empower you, to bring about righteousness and truth in your life. Yes, we need community. Yes, we need God's word. But it begins from the inside out as Jesus changes our hearts the very moment we come to him. The last part of this is that our meal of remembrance reminds us that a day of fulfillment awaits us. Beloved, this is not the end. Uh, A couple of us were talking last week as the worship team was practicing and we were talking about some of the political turmoil that's going on. And we just sort of mentioned, you know what, in the midst of all the crisis we see going on in our world, it just makes me long for the day when all will be right. We have that hope. You see it in what Jesus does. Jesus makes a vow in the midst of this meal as he's partaking it. And he says that he will not Drink of the cup again. He will not eat of this meal again until the kingdom is fulfilled. And there's a lot of debate. Some people think it means that the coming of the church and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I don't think so. I think it's talking about that ultimate consummation, that ultimate end. When Jesus says all things will be right and we gather together as God's people from all of the ages and we celebrate with a memorial Passover, with a memorial gathering, and we say God is good all the time. Look what he has accomplished. This is the future day when in commemoration we will celebrate the Passover in the kingdom of God. Not with a sacrifice, that's done. But in commemoration and consummation. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus talks about this meal. As the centurion comes and shows faith that is beyond anything that any in Israel have shown. And as he speaks to this Gentile, he says, when Jesus heard this, his faith, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth, I have not found such faith in anyone in Israel. I tell you, many will come from the east and west to share in the banquet, the festival, the celebration of what God has done 
with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. When we gather together for that meal and we remember the cup and we remember the bread, it is not only a celebration of what Jesus did. It is not only a celebration of what Jesus is doing. It is a celebration of what is yet to come. It is a full Advent meal that he came, that he comes, and that he's coming again. My hope is as we look at this, we will understand that what Jesus was doing in that meal was a celebration and a declaration that God is faithful. For 1,400 years, he helped them to remember a Passover that took place when they were delivered from Egypt. But he said, just as God promised a new covenant, it is now established. And we remember his faithfulness. And we remember the covenant he has made with us until that day when we sit down for the ultimate gathering and celebration of all the people of God in the kingdom of God forever. We have the new covenant. It is brought to us by Christ through faith. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we enjoy the fullness of that relationship and the inauguration of that new covenant. As we think this week of Easter, remember it was a Passover celebration. When God took the old lamb and replaced it with the new, And declared that now as his people, we know the complete forgiveness of sins. Personal interaction with God. The indwelling of the Spirit. And a change that begins here. And works its way out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the context in which we can read this story. Father, remind us of the incredible faithfulness that you have in our lives. And Father, remind us of the incredible gift you have given to us in your Son. Father, it begins with faith and trust in receiving the gift that Jesus paid. And as we say each week, if there's someone here that's not certain of that relationship, we ask that your Spirit would work in their lives and move them to come and to speak to myself or someone else about that relationship. Father, thank you for all who enjoy the inauguration, the beginning of that new covenant which you established in the blood of your Son. Remind us of the incredible privilege and help us to live it out its implications in our relationship with you and in our relationships with one another. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.